This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on May 29th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... 500 years ago, the wisest medical people on Earth had an explanation for the cause of your epilepsy, which is you've been sleeping with Satan and you're demonically possessed, and the medical cure was absolutely clear, which is burn you at the stake. That's Robert Sapolsky. He's a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University. He's also a research associate at the National Museums of Kenya. In the lab, he's a neurobiologist who studies the effects of stress. In the field, he's a primatologist who looks at individual differences in stress, behavior, and health among wild baboons living in a national park. He's the author of Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers and of A Primate's Memoir. And his most recent book is Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. I'd seen him give talks in person and read his work, so I jumped at the chance to be in his company on a Scientific American lecture cruise last summer. We spoke aboard ship somewhere in the English Channel. Midway through our chat, we'll take a six-minute break sponsored by the Cavalier Prize about the most recent winners announced May 27th. And now, Robert Sapolsky. Behave is too massive a work to discuss in its entirety, but I thought that uh, the chapter on free will and neuroscience and the law would be of great interest to our audience. And um, so let's talk about free will and why we don't have any. Okay, well, that's, uh, I recognize by now, a somewhat contentious issue. Um, The book of mine you're referring to is this unreadable, like 800 page long monstrous thing that basically looks at the biology underlying our best and worst behaviors. And its basic premise is uh, to understand why somebody did what they just did. You have to understand the neurobiology from a second ago, but the endocrinology from hours to days ago and the neuroplasticity and back to adolescence, childhood, fetal life, genes, what culture your ancestors invented, because that's going to influence how you were raised, the ecological influences on culture, evolution, the whole shebang. And one of the things I think that people are most struck with after you go through this whole song and dance, in addition to G's, we're complicated, um, is the traditional notions of free will start looking mighty suspect. When you have just a list of all of the things, well, I'm this way in part because my great-great-great-grandparents had these sort of values that that influenced what my first month of life was like. I had this because of this prenatal thing. I've had this because of this genetic propensity coupled with this or that environment. You spend a huge amount of time with people essentially saying the same thing over and over oh, I had no idea biology had something to do with that. And what's clear is, like, if you want to believe in free will, which I don't, but if you want to, whatever it is, it's getting hemmed in more and more by new biological findings, and it's getting hemmed into less and less interesting places. Like, if you want to really hold on to the notion of free will and you want to claim it was your free decision as to whether you flossed your upper teeth this morning first or your lower teeth, you know, go for it. You should be happy. You know, that's okay. But in any realm where we judge the value of a human's behavior, 
the notion of us being free agents who should be held responsible um, simply is not scientifically supportable. And you quote Dennett in the book about free will, about anything worth wanting. Um, yeah, which I don't believe um, at this point. It's if you insist on free will, it's on whatever is not particularly interesting. Um, push to an extreme if I want to like encapsulate all of this in sort of the most in your face kind of way. Free will is what we call the things that biology has not explained yet. So, um, you know, a lot of listeners may be familiar with the notion that neurons are firing uh, prior to you making what you think is your conscious decision to reach for that apple. Yep. And that's been sort of a point of contention. Some classic studies, Libet and others that have been pursuing at what point is the brain showing indications of having made a decision? At what point are you conscious of making it? And it's been embroiled in counterinterpretations. For some people, it's proof, proof your brain has decided beforehand and others, it's not acceptable. But sort of from my perspective, none of those matter those arguments, because in some ways they're equivalent to the main argument the legal system goes after when it's trying to decide issues of free will responsibility, which is, did the person intend to do X or Y? If they didn't intend it and it happened by accident, that's one thing. If by accident, but due to negligence with the accident, that's another. If they intended and they didn't pull it off, that's another thing. If they intended and pulled it off, but they didn't know that even if they hadn't intended it, they would have been forced to. Legal scholars, this is the hair splitting that they do. And it's all built around once you get to understand somebody's intent, that's the thing they should be held responsible for. And the gigantic, humongous flaw in all of that thinking is, so where'd that intent come from? Where'd that valuing of hierarchy or having that notion of what's right or wrong or believing that it's okay to sacrifice one for five or believing that, you know, whatever your beliefs, your tastes, your desires are, all that is, is the product of all the biology that came before one second ago when you either did or didn't, you know, stick your hand on the cash box or pull that trigger or do something wonderful. And the law does recognize the difference between premeditated and meditated. And there's a, there's a harsher punishment for meditated. So, Absolutely. You know, they, so there's, I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is that they are taking into account the fact that you can be on sort of automatic pilot a little bit. And the other is that um, you are still an agent with free will. And so... Uh, there's responsibility, but at, just at different levels. And what, what, what you're saying is, based on everything we know about the biology, it, it just looks like more of a decision-making process went into it. But Exactly, because the biological influences are less apparent when they're lifelong. They're less apparent when they're in domains that like we've only just learned about, but that's exactly the case. I mean, the legal stance is, well, you're perfectly responsible for your actions because there's free will until there's certain types of brain damage, which we can talk about. But otherwise, you're basically responsible. And if you've thought through doing something criminal, 
That's your responsibility. Oh, yeah, but we recognize crimes of passion in moments emotions can get very strong and that could be a mitigating circumstance. But otherwise, okay, the little man inside your head running all the control panels there, sometimes he's like in the bathroom and off duty when you like go do something reckless and out of control because you're in emotional tumult then. But otherwise, most of the time you need to be held responsible and it simply doesn't work biologically. So the homunculus, the little man, he's in control, but it's when he leaves the room for a moment that free will comes into play in these other people's assessments. Or, you know, not not to run with that metaphor mm -hmm. too much, but, you know, our sense of agency can be overwhelmed in some extreme emotional circumstances where that could be very mitigating revenge killings things of that sort juries all the time are in effect being asked whether one's sense of responsibility is lessened in certain types of moments of arousal but again all of it is built around the notion of if you could calmly act upon the things you value it's your responsibility then and utterly ignoring where did those values come from in the first place. Can, can we talk a little bit about the other kinds of evidence for, um, for, for want of a better expression, the lack of free will other than the neurons firing before we're conscious of a decision? Sure. Literally working back in time from, you know, a fragment of a second before those neurons do whatever – one example of the sensory world around us. If you put people in a room with a bad smell, they become more socially conservative on questionnaires. If you get a judge who's hungry and hasn't eaten in quite a few hours, that person is more likely to be punitive in their judgments. Okay, so that's the realm of like minutes to hours before. Pushing back, if you're male and your androgen levels were elevated that morning, your sensory thresholds for detecting something as being provocative and in your face have lessened. Because of that hormone, your brain is more likely to decide you're in a threatening situation when you're not. That's the last few hours to days of the biology. If your brain developed or lost certain neural connections over the course of the previous half year or so due to stimulation, chronic stress, deprivation, whatever things cause the neuroplastic state of the brain to change, that's going to make for a different likelihood of what those neurons are going to do in that instant. All the way back, if you were a kid raised in adversity, witness to victim of all types of abuse, poverty, incarcerated family members, substance abuse, etc., all of those added up are a massive predictor of your frontal cortex developing failing to develop in a way where you are more predisposed towards making lousy, disinhibited decisions. Back to fetal life, some of the exact same things, stress hormone exposure during fetal life and how your brain is constructed. But even further back, if you were raised in a culture of honor, and the American version of that is in the American South, but there's all sorts of versions of that throughout the world. You are far more likely to kill someone someday, and that person is far more likely to be someone you know. And in a non-material circumstance where instead you felt like they were dissing you and your pride. And 
get raised in a non-culture of honor and a dramatic difference in that. And what does that have to do if 500 years ago your ancestors were sheep herders or cattle herders or camel or goat people? Those are the types of cultures that invent cultures of honor. Certain ecosystems may, wait a second, we're already up to, wait, my ancestors lived in a rainforest. Your ancestors were herding camels in the Sahara. Your ancestors were agriculturalists. Were and this now influences how we were brought up within minutes of birth. So all of these factors, and it takes a lot of work to sit somebody down and figure out how they're actually responsible for what prenatal epigenetic effects went on in their brain, which affects their adult behavior. And it's just that all of those other biological influences, okay, you get someone who right in front of you, their brain is a mess. They're floridly schizophrenic. They've had massive brain damage from an injury. Okay, people can sort of get around the idea then that free will might be a little bit compromised in folks. But because people are not accustomed to thinking of your fetal environment has influenced the sort of like values you have, your et cetera, et cetera. It's really so much easier to just decide that all of that put together constitutes agency and responsibility. Yeah, it's, you know, we have a lot of people who will look at other people and say, well, they should just suck it up or they, they need to just try harder. Um, you know, I, I hear people, somebody is grows up in just horrible abject poverty and winds up uh, very creative and becomes wealthy and famous. And then there are, there are people in society who look at that person and say, why don't all the other people in that group do that too? You see, that's proof it can be done. But it's statistical. It's statistical. And it's statistical and super rare and we happen to be marinating in a society with all these myths of any person can become president and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get adversity early in life, and you're 99% unlikely, forget having the strength to pull up the bootstraps. You won't even have like functional fingers to pull the laces up or whatever. Um, yeah, there's an exception to everything. People... One out of, I don't know, 100,000 came out of concentration camps psychologically healthier than before they went in as opposed to everybody else. The assumption that comes out of that should not be, ooh, everyone should have been able to do that. Right. There's biological outliers in every regard. We'll be back with more from Robert Sapolsky after this. It may sound cliche, but even for top-tier scientists... Seeing is believing. We always think, well, what am I going to learn from this molecule that I don't already know? There's something visceral about seeing it. And of course, you do learn a tremendous amount. That's David Julius of the University of California, San Francisco. His work, discovering a family of receptors that detect heat, cold, and a cornucopia of chemical irritants, laid the foundation for the molecular understanding of how we feel pain. This week, Julius was awarded a Kavli Prize in Neuroscience, along with Ardem Paputian, who unraveled how we sense pressure. The prestigious Kavli Prize celebrates science that transforms our understanding of the world around us and within us. Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the Kavli Prize, reached out to a few of this year's Kavli winners and asked them to share the secrets of their success. We learned there's a lot to be said for keeping an open mind and open eyes. 
The universe is full of wondrous things, and the more closely you look, the more you find. If you can look where people have not looked before, then you stand a chance of finding something new. Andrew Fabian of the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge took home the Kavli Prize in Astrophysics for developing powerful new methods that use X-rays to reveal never-before-seen celestial events. I was able to follow a source in our own galaxy, uh, an accreting black hole, which flared up to become the second brightest X-ray source in the sky just a couple of years ago. That black hole was surrounded by a swirling disk of gas, dust and other solar debris. We were seeing signatures of this innermost radius of the accretion disk where material is, as it were, falling over the edge of the waterfall. Once it reaches us in a radius, it starts to plunge into the black hole. It's like going over the Niagara Falls. And when matter tumbles into a black hole, energy shoots out. Those energetic jets can sweep gas out of the galaxy. And without gas, no new stars can form. And so in terms of the life cycle of a galaxy, it can well be that the black hole at the centre plays a major part in how the galaxy evolves. While Fabian was using X-rays to look at objects millions of light years away, microscopists were drilling down on a big problem on a much smaller scale. The world is made of atoms. We are made out of it. The air that we're breathing is made out of it. The coronavirus is made out of atoms. That's Andre Krivonik, founder of a company called Neon. He shared the 2020 Kavli Prize in nanoscience with the team of Harold Rose, Maximilian Hayter, and Newt Orban for independently designing electromagnetic lenses that sharpen the resolution of electron microscopes so much that they can reliably visualize the individual atoms from which all things are made. Eminent microscopist once said, it's as though a veil of fog lifted from our samples. Penetrating that fog required solving a problem that had plagued electron microscopy since its invention in the 1930s. The spherical lenses that focus the electron beams inside the instrument produce aberrations that blur or distort the resulting images. Designing electromagnetic filters that correct these aberrations required determination. When we started, people expected us to fail. It was just people's mindset. Distinguish people had tried and it didn't work. So nobody else is going to succeed. For Krivonik, the secret to success involved breaking down the problem into smaller steps. It wasn't just correcting the spherical aberration. The big innovation was correcting all the other, what we call parasitic aberrations. Since are going to break out, we have to find out what they are and fix it one by one. So that's an important lesson, that your chances of success will go up. You will have just one thing to focus on at a time. Those parasitic aberrations eliminated, Kravonik started to see some pretty wondrous things like the carbon atoms in a sheet of graphene. Before aberration correction, you look at graphene, it was just kind of white sheet. And then he switched on his corrector. And the picture just come back spectacularly clear. You can see every single atom, and you watch how they rearrange. And we could see all that in real time. It was a revelation. So yeah, I did kind of push back from the microscope and say, we made a, that's a word that starts with an F, <laughs> good microscope. Julius also realized that seeing at the atomic scale was critical, especially for understanding how the pain receptors he identified, called trip channels, work. Information that could someday lead to the development of drugs that keep pain in check. But not everyone agreed that the time was right. Other people in the lab, I think, were thinking, this is like a fool's errand. People had been trying to resolve structures for trip channels for many years. 
I had this very brave postdoctoral fellow named Erhu Kao come to my lab. And he said, yeah, let's give it a shot. His initial attempts at prepping crystals of the protein for structural analysis were not a success. He soldiered on for two or three years, making all this protein, trying to make crystals when the crystals were lousy. We got no joy in that. But Julius is a big believer in persistence. Science takes work, and most of what you do is fail. I always tell people in my lab, persistence pays off. You have to work on something that you personally find exciting enough to keep you going. It's worth taking that risk for something that could be really transformative. The first images of the receptor protein came back remarkably clear. I get this email from Erhu, and he says, David, I think this is the real deal. But Julius wanted to be 100% sure that what he was seeing was, in fact, the real deal. A couple of years earlier, a student in the lab, Chris Bolin, had determined that spider toxins can latch onto the trip channel and activate it, which is why spider bites are so painful. I said, I'm going to believe all this stuff when we can put this toxin on and see it in complex with the channel. Once he convinced everyone that this was worth a try, the results came quickly. About a week later, you see the same channel with these two little dots on top. We knew not only did we have this channel, but it was real. We could see toxin bound to it. It's observations like these that continue to open our eyes to the wonders of the natural world and all that lies beyond. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. Now back to Robert Sapolsky. So let's talk about the law. I mean, in the book, you say there are three things we can basically do with this knowledge that free will is pretty ethereal, and that is just abolish the penal system uh, or not do anything or make some kind of modification, if I remember correctly. So abolishing the penal system because nobody has full agency over what they do, um, it sounds like it would be the fair thing to do, but obviously you can't let murderers run around free to keep murdering people. Good. And you don't have to. That's one of the, you know, I am of the stance that the entire criminal justice system, top to bottom, makes no sense whatsoever because it is predicated on 200-year-old biology. We have no control ultimately over anything we do. When we say, I've changed my mind about doing this or that, we are in fact saying circumstances have changed my mind. We have no agency and the criminal justice system does not make any sense at all. Okay, the normal response then at that point is, so what? You're going to let murderers running around on the street? Absolutely not. And the most useful metaphor for that is, if you have a car whose brakes aren't working, you don't let it out to drive. It's going to injure somebody. It's dangerous. If you can fix the brakes, fix them. That's wonderful. And I don't know, one out of a thousand people whose experiences in life full of adversity has made them antisocially criminal. We actually know how to fix these days. So then you turf to the next one. If you can't fix the broken brakes, you put the car in a garage. If need be, you keep the car in the garage for the rest of time. You do have to protect people from it, but you don't sit there and come up with nonsense about how the car deserves not to be able to have a nice drive in the park on a Sunday afternoon. You've subtracted that out of it. And ultimately, what you get 
with criminality is, you know, cars with bad brakes is one sort of metaphor, but one that is not metaphorical. You get a medical model rather than a criminal one. Quarantine. We have spent centuries figuring out how to balance civil liberties and personal rights with infectivity, with pandemics, all of that, and quarantine laws. And what we are looking at with most people who are violent and terrifying and who, because they're so damaged that they're enormously damaging, is someone who needs not be punished because that's an irrelevant concept, but in some domain, they need to be quarantined. The people they are dangerous to need to be protected from them. But if your mindset is, oh my God, that's so like dehumanizing to think of us just as like cars with broken brakes, that's a hell of a lot better than sermonizing us into being demons. And so many people in prison, I mean, serial killers is one thing, mass murderers is one thing, but so many people who are in prison, we've, we've run articles on this in Scientific American, are the victims of a a spontaneous moment they happen to be on the corner when they were confronted if they had been a half a block away the incident that put them in prison for the rest of their lives when they were 17 would not have happened and so they're not a threat to everybody but they're spending the rest of their life in prison and as the Supreme Court has ruled, particularly in the case you bring up, if it's a 16-year-old who did it, they still have another 10 years of brain development in terms of self-control. That's why the Supreme Court made within the confines of the gibberish that constitutes the criminal justice system a very wise ruling that when you have somebody of that age, you can't give them life without the chance of parole because they can change. It's increasingly obvious that there are a lot of people in prison that are not a threat to anybody. Yep. And, you know, it's a system that's not working very well. And often what happens then is they're being trained how to be effective threats for once they get out. Um, okay, here's, here's the example that I always come back to that kind of short circuits the, oh, my God, you're going to have like murderers out on the street or what kind of system you're going to have if you just decide no one's responsible for anything, um, which is the knowledge that we've been able to change our thinking and start thinking that way in certain domains. And the greatest example of that is with epilepsy. 500 years ago, if you had epileptic seizures and you were living in virtually any Western country, the wisest medical people on earth had an explanation for the cause of your epilepsy, which is you've been sleeping with Satan and you're demonically possessed. And the medical cure was absolutely clear, which is burn you at the stake. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people with epilepsy were killed during the Inquisition and in the years surrounding that. And then at some point... And it's kind of 19th century and the leading edge of that was in France. At some point, people began to figure out, oh, it's a disease. It's not him. It's his disease. It's not demonic possession. It's screwed up potassium channels in your cortex kind of thing. And what's happened is we have medicalized epilepsy 
so that it's absurd anywhere in the West now to think of it as anything other than a disease. I've seen enough examples in the developing world where it is still viewed in a medieval sense, but at least in the West, it's generally accepted. But then you have a domain. You've got somebody with no history of a seizure, never one, and out of nowhere, they have a grand mal seizure while they're driving. They lose control of the car and something tragic occurs. And nobody in our culture now will sit there and say, that bastard killed my child. What you say is, this is the most heartbreaking bad luck. Sometimes bad luck takes the form of tornadoes or earthquakes. In this case, it took the case of a totally unpredictable grand mal seizure. And every single state out there has laws saying how long that person now needs to be seizure-free on medication before they can drive again. And society is protected from that particular danger, having subtracted responsibility completely out of there. It's not like bands of like goiterous Yahoo peasants with pitchforks show up for the burning of the epileptic's driver's licenses. It's just like crappy biological luck and so heartbreaking you can't believe it, but it's not his fault. And we've managed to do it with that. We're doing it a little bit with schizophrenia. We're making some progress with dyslexia, things like that. Autism isn't viewed as being caused by mothers who were cold and heartless in refrigerators. You know, there's domains where we're getting biologically insightful enough that everyday people are learning that's a problem with biology, not a problem with their soul, not a problem with their and in the process. We're also learning how to craft society so the people are safe from those consequences. We can do it. It took us 500 years with epilepsy, so that's not a great track record. But all of this is at least room for encouragement. Um, it doesn't mean people are going to run amok to recognize either that we have no free will or we have far less than most people tend to think. Your goiterous Yahoo's line is a direct quote from your book, which made me made me laugh when I read it in the book and I I uh, squelched my laughter when you when you said it again I had to look up goiterous in that context <laughs> well it's just sort of an image of yeah. sort of you know all sorts of unseemly things about your typical medieval peasant who would have shown up for a good witch burning good chance they had a <laughs> pendulous goiter there yeah um, it's just so, so fascinating. Why don't you tell the pig story? Because that, that's an indication of societal recognition of certain aspects of intent. Uh, sure. Even five, six hundred years ago, when, by the way, this is a fascinating field for anybody. There are really interesting scholarly papers on the uh, criminal prosecution of animals in the Middle Ages. Yep. This was a big, vibrant subject, and this was one particular case in some village in France where some pig knocked over an eight-year-old boy and ate him along with her piglets. They all ate the kids. Pigs are actually omnivores and will, like, there's been a surprising number of grandpa farmers over the years who've gotten a little bit lightheaded and a little bit whatever out in the field there and before the pigs got them. Yeah, so anybody who's watched Deadwood knows that the pigs oh. <laughs> are really good at disposing of bodies. Okay, I, I, I missed that bit of cultural currency. Um, so this was a case in 
14th century in France, and this pig and her piglets were brought to trial, complete with there's a defender and there's a prosecutor for the murder of this boy. And the court made an incredibly savage decision that was perfectly in line with the time, which is the, the pig was responsible. Hang the pig. And the court at the same time made an incredibly progressive view centuries ahead of its time saying, and oh yeah, the piglets are probably too young to have fully developed. Well, maybe not saying in the, in the text their frontal cortexes, but their soul was still developed. So the piglets, don't hang them, but the mother definitely knew what she was doing, so hang her. And yeah, somewhere along the way, we figured that one out. In the 16th century, there was something or other that happened with like Earth's magnetic axes or who knows what. And for about 100 years, things got a lot colder and we entered what's been called the Little Ice Age. And, you know, nowadays we think we understand this, this caused have this caused hailstorms in the middle of the summer, destroying crops, it caused famine in Western Europe. And people now have these ideas about like magnetic poles on earth or some such thing. People at the time had a very simple explanation, witches, witches got together and caused hailstorms. And that led to a whole outburst of witch burning. Oh, yeah. That's not an hour power either. It's just a long history of us realizing not only don't animals have control over murderous behavior, not only do people not have the means to control, you know, the weather, but we are nothing more than the end product of all the biology and all of the environmental influences upon that biology that's come before us. I would let, I would let that be the last word because it's a great last word. But um, just as another example of the glimmer of uh, sort of a, a, a more rational attitude is the tear ducts story. That's actually part of the title of that chapter. Okay, this is one where, okay, so what can we do about this problem of the criminal justice system? We need to recognize more cases of people with childhood histories of brain damage. Or and, you know, that's, that's rearranging the utensils on the Titanic. That's, that's reform. That's good liberal reform because it still is dealing with the basic notion that there's such a thing as responsibility. Here's what reforming the criminal justice system looks like. This was during the Middle Ages when people in their great wisdom had figured out exactly how to detect if someone was a witch, if someone had accused them. And there was a whole series of tests. And one of the tests was you were supposed to sit there and read this potential alleged witch during this witch wave that was attacking society. And you, what you would do was read them the story about the crucifixion of our Lord. And if they didn't cry at this, they were obviously in, in cahoots with Beelzebub. They were a witch. If they didn't cry at the story, that was your diagnosis. And into that came a 16th century bleeding heart liberal, some doctor who published a book saying, yes, 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 there's Satan. And yes, 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 there's witches. And yes, he says, it's a great idea to like burn them and society needs to be freed of them. But keep in mind every now and then when people get old and remember, it's a lot of old people, especially old women who wind up being witches. Keep in mind that sometimes the lacrimal glands, the tear ducts in the eye 
atrophy with age. So you have someone who is wanting to cry at the story of the crucifixion of our Lord, but is unable to for a biological constraint. Make sure you don't mess up and burn those people at the stakes and just only burn up the real witches. That's a liberal reform of the criminal justice system because its basic starting point is a presumption of agency. And it ain't there. And the the author of that book got in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, just to show how much he was an obvious bleeding heart liberal, his book was banned both by the Pope and by the Reformation. Like nobody wanted to hear like some like, you know, next he was going to start trying to get people to be vegetarian or something. It's such a fascinating history. And, and we're at a, a point now where the the information is really flowing in um is is neuroscience going to put philosophy out of business well this is where the philosophers start having conniptions what i think might be the less like <laughs> snitty thing to state is that they're going to become <laughs> an interdisciplinary there's a whole field now called neurophilosophy. There's a book published recently called Neuroexistentialism. What should our advances in brain science do to our sense of what our purpose is? And you better bet that was full of a whole bunch of people talking about, uh-oh, what if we don't have any free will? Where's, where's the meaning if we are just the sum of our neurons? Yeah, I don't think it's going to put philosophers out of business. It's just going to force like dead white male neurobiologists and dead white male philosophers to talk to each other more. The dead ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just the, and <laughs> in, in that image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you working on another book yet or did that one just take it out of you for a while? Well, that one took it out of me for a while, but I'm working on a next book that's directly derivative of this, um, essentially built around the fact that I am completely intellectually at peace with the notion that we have no free will whatsoever. And at the same time, I have absolutely no idea how the world is supposed to function if people actually started thinking that way. So the book is like crawling for any sort of insights as to sort of how you're supposed to incorporate that extreme version of we are biological organisms, nothing more or less. One thing that's clear to me is it's going to be really hard to figure out how to construct a society where people look at a serial murderer and say it's not him, it's his crappy bad biological luck. It's going to be 10 times harder to get people to just say biological luck the next time somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Great job you did on that. Great dinner you made. Great decision in choosing to wear that shirt today instead of the other one. Good going. You know, if it's sheer biological luck for our worst ends of our humanity, it's the same exact biology for the better ends. And it's going to be mighty hard for people to let go of, like, we are the end product of biology when it comes to our most praiseworthy things along with our most condemnable behaviors. You can find more in the book uh, on that. Uh, just look for in that chapter on free will in the legal system. Look for the material about cheekbones and pineapples. Ah, that's right. I had forgotten that was how that was framed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating stuff. I've often thought about it also in terms of when people say something to, you know, not me, but to somebody with striking eyes. You have such beautiful eyes. 
What are they supposed to say? Thank you. What did they have <laughs> yeah, to do with it? Exactly. And, you know, we kind of are at that point of seeing that that's ridiculous. Oh, beautiful cheekbones, beautiful zygomatic arches on your skull. Oh, thanks. I worked really hard for that. I mean, we're kind of there. There's still an unconscious residual thing that people have of confusing uh, beauty, external beauty with internal goodness. And there's, there's fascinating psychological studies on that. But we've gotten pretty far at if you really stop somebody and force them to think about it, they really, really are not responsible for their beautiful eye color. And, you know, <laughs> great job on the SATs. Yeah, there was a lot of protein in the maternal circulation when I was a fetus. And from there on out, it's been nothing but good luck. Same exact thing. Right. Not to mention the socioeconomic status of the parents and how much tutoring they could purchase. Yep, exactly. Even without somebody paying to say that you were on the uh, <laughs> you were on the lacrosse team or the water polo team. Right. Yes. The idea of paying to uh, bribing someone to get into a good school. Uh, I'm not sure where you went to uh, undergrad, but I'm a product of the City University of New York, which was pretty much free, and I'm still happy about it. And probably no one ever paid anybody money to say that you were actually like a top boxer or something to get you into City University. Not even close. Not even close. No, I could never hit a curve. <laughs> no. <laughs> What's clear is, you know, don't do something illegal like that. Just use your vast money to get a building on a campus if you want to get your inadequately prepared kid except to do it the way regular law-abiding rich people can do it. By the way, Sapolsky called his book unreadable. Chapter 2 is a 60-page history and primer of neuroscience that can be a bit challenging, but the rest of the book is very readable and thought-provoking and fun. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 